Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hey everyone, I am back with three more chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. This is an audio novella that I've been sharing to Magic of the Spheres podcast. It is an in-progress audio novella, meaning I share chapters pretty soon after they're written. Go back to the beginning if you um, haven't tuned in from the start. And what I feel inspired to share before this next installment is that part of why I began writing this audio novella was to come back to a state of flow in my life of having spaciousness for new stories and new life um, because I was carrying around a pretty significant grief process that's had many iterations um, that, you know, as the story goes on, you'll, you'll come to understand more why this has been something that has taken me many years to process. But um, I'm sharing this right now from London. I just had a really amazing week and some profound happenings that came through my life that felt like I need to record this in detail, as in new stories have been given to me and life is occurring again. And that was essentially the prayer in part for this book. And I've really been appreciating your listenership and the emails slash DMs slash text messages that I'm getting from you about how this story is touching and affecting you. So with that, I'm going to leave you to the next couple of chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. You've been listening, so you know the drill. This story is explicit, erotic, and often triggering, so it's not suitable for all listeners, please listen responsibly and we'll get into it. Chapter 12. On the way down the coast, we stop in San Francisco, our first city. With a flittery, butterfly like quality, Aiden tracks the street fashion, starts talking about making his own clothes with a sewing machine so he could dress in costume every day, be a persona. He pulls at his basic shirt as if to make the fabric shrug with its mediocrity. He doesn't look bad at all. I support his rock star-esque visions. We get Thai food and stop in a jewelry slash head shop after. They tell us about Kratom, which we'd never had or heard of before. A green relaxing powder dosed around half a teaspoon. We select a variety called Monarch to take with us. We go to the beach so Aiden can catch some coastal wind with his paraglider. The wind is not right for fully taking flight, he tells me, but he can get some air. He hands me a pair of binoculars he found in my trunk. A friend had given them to me. 
so I can watch him. There are purple flower bushes licked by the sand lining the beaches, wheat-looking grasses waving in the sun. I am certain I've seen this in a dream. Something is familiar about it. Hayden is surfing a layer of air still close to the ground, getting a few feet up and then back down to the ground again, like he's walking on the moon, a sandy, flowery moon, guided by his striped parachute. The binoculars let me see the detail of his face, even from far away. He's grinning. The sand, too, kicks up in the wind. I can't remember seeing flowers on the beach before, except maybe in a dream. Part of me is rushing for the next frame of time, for us to get back in the car and keep driving, because it's cold out and I know Aiden takes forever when he's enjoying himself. Part of me feels a grief and a reverie that doesn't exist yet. Chapter 13 At Aiden's New Year's party, we'd gathered around a fire toward the end of the night and each shared our New Year's resolutions. I want to get my novel that I recently finished published. I said, and I want to be a number one New York Times bestseller. I planned on finding an agent that year, and I believed that I would, in my single-mindedness and complete faith, achieve it. As always, announcing this bold intention into a space turned heads. People stopped questioning me or warning me that it was hard to get published. With time, the intensity of my clarity and the way I embodied that began to elicit more supportive responses. The fire crackled, the air crisp. I felt my words settle into the bodies of the people around me, like embers going out on the ground. It's the last days leading up to my 24th birthday. Aiden and I are en route to Los Angeles to the Writers' Conference, where I plan to find that agent. I'd already written personalized query letters to 70 agents who all lived in New York City, and a few of them were going to be at the conference. We stay with my mom, who is overjoyed to have us. We arrive a few days before the conference begins. It hasn't been long since the funeral, and it's our first time seeing each other again since. Everything is different. My dad isn't there. My mom is a widow. I'm newly partnered-ish with a man my mom adores. I have been tight-lipped for a long time, if not my whole life, controlling my speech to create the best possible outcomes for my sovereignty, withholding information skillfully, loosening up my speech strategically to water relationships. Every piece of information carefully selected and scanned I learned too many times that telling my mom details about my life was dangerous, even though I think we both began with a desire to be close. If anything I confided in her with triggered her fear, she would use the information I offered up in a moment of connection to create restrictions in my life, to protect me. I chose my freedom and secret experiences over relationship with her. I learned to be a spy. The years of pent-up rage eventually became a swirling part of a spiritual emergency I had at 21 when I was in love with an actual ex-CIA agent and realized how profoundly hidden I was. So I was tight-lipped, strategically lipped, and Aiden gabs. He tells my mom as we're sitting around the foyer, all of us putting on our shoes to go get smoothies or something, 
that he sees colors and lights when he meditates and when he does yoga. That's amazing. My mom lights up. I imagine how she would have responded if it were me. Probably a grumble, a non-response, at most a side-eyed, okay. I see lights every day, I say, inching my way in. They show up like little stars, validating information and resonance. I've been seeing them since 2012, I say, refraining from adding, you know, when you thought I was insane. I continue. I see swirling colors when I do yoga and meditate too. Wow, my mom says. I wish I saw lights. Half enraged, half grateful. I see that Aiden is a bridge in my family dynamic, that suddenly the parts of my inner reality that are foreign to my family are more valid here, through the translation of Aiden, that I am icy, not fully thought out. I take shelter under Aiden's connection with my mom. As we go to the conference and come back at night, and she's eager to connect with us right away, and I wish she'd give us a minute, I let Aiden do all the talking excitedly telling my mom a summary of the day and all the talks and panels we attended while I decompress. It's relaxing and comforting that Aiden doesn't invalidate my experience. He completely understands my bitterness. He understands my grievances about my childhood. He doesn't moralize it or slap on specific family values to judge me by. She controlled you growing up because of her anxiety Controlling you as a way to manage your anxiety, he says. He protects me by understanding me. But when I start to loop, talk too much about it, he makes out with me. I feel my thoughts get drowned out, and I'm mad he's not listening. How dare he? But I surrender and feel those thoughts drift far away, like a boat disappearing into the horizon and growing ever fainter until it's just gone. I thought you needed that, he smiles. At the conference, we find ourselves in a sea of thousands of writers, academics, teachers, agents, published authors. Aiden stands tall, well-postured, profoundly athletic. There's so much intellectual energy here, he says excitedly. He is slightly critical of the disembodied atmosphere, the throat chakra and up concentration, but also exhilarated by it. He takes notes at the talks. Aiden suggests a sort of game, that we go up to the panelists and speakers after each talk we attend and speak with them. I can't just do that, I protest. I'm shy. But you're here to get published and make connections, he said. We should talk to as many people as possible. It would be good for you to get out of your comfort zone. I approach one of the agents I stalked down. I recognized her name. We'll call her Cindy. Face to face, I tell her. You're the first agent I queried. She sharply pulls her head back into her neck, like I've just reached out to accost her. Now that I've already spoken and received this kind of feedback, I can see how what I've said is not charming at all. I start to take notes to think about more engaging things to say to speakers after, based on what they talk about. I go up to dozens of people. One woman on a panel about mentorship stands out. When I approach her and she says hello back, 
a blue light appears just above her upper lip. For a moment, I am enveloped in her aura, like, and she was really there. Everything behind her disappears, as though behind a curtain. She is interested, engaged, strangely safe. After one talk, I'm trying to leave the room and Aiden urges me to stay and join a small group of people crowded around the speakers. I can't do it, I say. I don't feel like I belong here. I just feel misplaced. I can't explain it. Try planting your feet into the ground and connecting your feet to the center of the earth and affirming that you do belong. Connect to the grid of the environment here, Aiden suggests. I try, and we bring ourselves back into the room, until I turn to Aiden with tears welling in my eyes, and we go outside together and hide away in a stairwell. I can't stop crying, warm, streaming. I see Aiden's concerned, present face through the distorting mirage of my watery vision. I'm trying to mentally understand my tears, and there's nothing I can grasp to communicate. I'm thinking of the past life regression workshop on the horizon, and trying to make a connection, like the future timeline of it is uprooting something from my samskaric field. Sorry, I pushed you too hard, Aiden says. Maybe talking to every single person is my strategy, not yours. What would make you feel better? I don't know, I say, feeling like I'm at the bottom of a well, tunnel vision. I feel Aiden's dog magic again, his bone-deep loyalty, the curiosity of his gaze, energy of a tail wagging gently. Maybe you can still talk to people, but more selectively, he says. You just cleared the way by talking to everyone. Now you have less inhibition and you can refine it. I'm still proud of you. Okay, I say. We embrace for a long time, and I'm not mad that he pushed me. I love him for it. And I love him for letting our plan change. Later, we hear an author speak who I didn't know before the conference, but I feel drawn to him. I like everything he says. His writing contains refined suffering, like he grappled with heaviness for years and distilled it. A failed marriage, the horrors of losing one's radical creative agency to the drudgery of the mundane, normie family life. He has a firm masculine energy and still a voice that travels as he looks off to an upper corner of his vision. I approach him after and end up telling him about my book and how I'm trying to get it published. He sighs. I know everyone says this and it's really annoying, but it's really hard to get published. It could take 10 years. A giant swirling orb of white light appears over his head and stays there. Ten years, ten years, ten years, ten years, ten years. I buy his book. I like his prose style. Aiden and I follow him to another talk the next day. Aiden sits in the very back and I sit in the front row. Aiden says he felt the author clock it and was confused by us. I feel a similar energy from this man, like he's both happy to connect and also deeply suspicious. Am I not a moth to a flame, a walking embodiment of desperate hunger? One morning, 
We take a photo outside the house before leaving for the conference, and I post it to social media with Aiden's permission. Not long after, Aiden says he felt Kat crying about it. I'm seething that he cares. Didn't Kat end it anyway? Doesn't Kat not want him? Will our love trigger her affection and their reconciliation? Aiden and I attend a panel consisting of all agents, speaking of how to query, how to stand out in the slush pile of an agent's inbox, what agents want, and more along these lines. Cindy is there. In a way that is disturbing for me to be with, I begin to hate Cindy. Her spidery thick eyelashes, her notable blush, her black pantsuit, the deeply put together look she has on just to end up looking normal, all becomes grotesque to me. She becomes a villain with no taste in art, talking about what books sell and the machine by which literature is published and promoted based on the publishing industry's vision of what will sell. I hate how they, Cindy as figurehead villain, literally funnel and distort and subjugate art through commercialism, instead of employing the potential genius of advertising to champion art. I hate them for not having the fortitude of will and artistic class to champion real, groundbreaking fucking art. I hate them for making all books rife with the same literary trends, like short dialogue-only paragraphs, with descriptive prose having gone out of style, relegated instead to the artist's canvas or the camera's lens. I get tired of hating Cindy, tired of this bitter version of me and what it potentially means about me. So I start to plant my feet into the ground and meditate on belonging on this earth and belonging in this conference. While I'm planted into the earth and the grid of the conference, Cindy is talking about something and I casually wish that she'd change the topic. She makes a sharp turn at that very moment. You know, another entirely different thing we should mention. Am I inside her head? I wonder. Assuming that I am, I pull myself out of her head. At the very moment I do, she jolts, like she's a puppet whose strings have just been dropped and got raised back up. She stops mid-sentence, disoriented-looking, silent for a few seconds. Then, I lost my train of thought, she says, staring off, frozen. I could never really know, but I felt pretty sure, even just holding the possibility that I'd entered her mind for a moment, accidentally. I'm disillusioned. A few months ago, Cindy was one person I'd projected my hopes, wishes, and aspirations onto. Her interests, listed on her website, seemed to line up with what I was offering, and I thought she was the one. But meeting her in person, she struck me as part of a literary industrial machine. She doesn't like me. She was repelled by me. I don't like her. I think she's a basic bitch and everything wrong with the literary world. Ouch. 
if I did just get inside of her head by planting my feet into the ground and having a vision of reality beyond the matrix that she is a gatekeeper of, I have all this power that may not actually belong in this particular milieu, and the bitterness I feel of rejection is not charming feeling either. To hate a woman for her rejection and then to evil eye her, it's rather hideous. So sorry, Cindy. Ho'oponopono. I'm sorry for hooking into your field unwelcome. I'm sorry for blaming you. I'm sorry for villainizing you. I'm sorry for focusing my gaze upon you with hatred. Please forgive me for looping you into a hateful narrative. Please forgive me for hating you. Thank you for showing me I could detach from the mainstream publishing industry. At least for now. Thank you for disillusioning me. Thank you for showing me the dissonance between my world and the world you represent. Blessings on your way. After the panel, Aiden approaches one of the agents, a man around my age, who I'd not queried before, but due to my extensive research, I was still aware of him. Adam. Adam lives in Brooklyn, dresses stylishly, brown curly hair, black-rimmed glasses. Aiden chats him up for me, and after a few minutes, Aiden introduces us to each other. The conversation morphs into us sitting down together. Suddenly we are an island, at an all-white table with all-white chairs, in the middle of a bustling conference with thousands of people in movement around us. Wow, paragliding? That's so cool. Sounds like a rush. I wish I was doing that. Adam tells us about some of his favorite clients, how in addition to caring about the project, he just likes being friends with his clients. Most of the things I say come out extremely awkward, but Adam seems charmed enough by Aiden for the both of us. He asks about my book, and I give the brief synopsis. The love affair with the spy, the spiritual awakening that gets medicalized, faking out of psychiatric treatment, etc. What's the title? Adam asks. The Garden of Sleeping Hammers. What an amazing title he says. He tells me to email him the first two chapters. Aiden, you did this for me. I'm elated. I have the writing. You have the charm. I'm a brute, Aries. You are my Libra Stellium king. My first opportunity to have an agent read my work. Thanks to you. I love you. You did this for me. You gave me a chance. I fucking love you. I came here with one mission and we did it. It wouldn't have happened without you. Chapter 14 I wake up on my 24th birthday with Aiden in my childhood bedroom, since renovated with walls I painted green. Christmas lights, a foam mattress on the floor, black faux fur duvet, my old wooden dresser I'd owned my whole life, the bottom drawer filled with old diaries. Aiden and I had looked through them at some point, like a treasure chest, until I suddenly became guarded. I'm afraid of you seeing me this way. There's art and entries here when I was essentially psychotic. I think of a piece of paper where, in ornate black calligraphy from a bottle of ink and a dip pen, I wrote, wretched cunt, over and over again, like punishment on a chalkboard 
not exactly words directed at myself, but an action that, for whatever reason, felt appropriate at the time in my absolute misery. Aiden's posture grows erect and protective, eyes lit up. Sabrina, I don't love you less for you being capable of becoming psychotic. I can be crazy too, and I want us to make it through that. I am stunned that he is protecting our love like that. We still are friends or not official, but with our travels and pending move-in together and this expression of devotion and loyalty, he again feels like my partner and not just a lover. The morning of my birthday, Aiden puts crystals over my body and eats me out, enters me after I come. We are slow moving, late to the Kundalini Yoga Festival in Joshua Tree. My mom takes us out to REI to buy me a tent for my birthday, buy us a tent for the festival. We meet my brother for Thai food. It feels new to me to have someone around in my family. We're laughing until we cry at the restaurant. My brother shows me a Yelp review he left for another restaurant. His voice surreal, imagistic, and absurdist at times like mine, but more through a comical lens than poetics. His review features a detail that an owl with a little graduation hat, tassel-tipped forward, greeted him at the door of the restaurant and delivered a rolled-up, ribbon-tied menu with his little beak. On the plane back from Los Angeles to Olympia after the funeral, I'd shown Aiden a music video of someone I knew, a friend of a friend, who I was certain was about to be famous. Only a day later, their first viral video happened, reaching one million views within a couple of days. Tonight, my birthday, they are playing a show in Los Angeles. They and I had talked on the phone for several hours only a few weeks back. We decide to go, dress up for a dance party, meet this femme whose star is rising, who soon will only be femme when they are playing a character. They greet us wearing all white, jeans and tasseled jacket and white cowboy hat, braided hair. One of their bandmates pulls me aside, tall and skinny, red lizard eye contacts in, emphatically thanking me for getting our friend to consider astrology, as he's been trying to convince them for years. He speaks to me about his charisma and personality and how people think he's chill, but underneath the airiness of it all, he is absolutely not chill. The lizard eyes, of course, and the flames on his pants reaching up toward the rest of his body. Give it away. Eden is getting everything he wanted that wasn't at the writer's conference. Dark mood lighting instead of fluorescence. Conversation that happens through the body. Costumes. Sweat. Aiden's vest looks like 80s workout gear, geometric neon. We take photos of dancing with roses in our mouths. At home, in the doorway to my bedroom, I run one finger over the center line of his chest. Tell him how before we even came together, my body knew him. That he makes me cosmically wet. His eyes soften and I feel his heart beneath my hand soften. And most of him turn erect, ready to claim me at my suggestion. Music